Shame is an unpleasant emotion we have all experienced at one point or another. It's the feeling associated with knowing that we've done something wrong, that our actions were not aligned with our values. Now in this way, as my interview guest, Dr. Joe Burgo argues, shame can be a positive emotion because truly understanding why you feel ashamed can help you to grow to be the person you want to be. Moreover, he argues that shame is better thought of as a whole family of emotions, of unpleasant self-conscious emotions, including guilt and simply feeling bad about yourself or who you are. Joe Burgo has been practicing psychotherapy for nearly 40 years, and he currently works via Zoom with clients all over the world. He's also published a half dozen books, fiction and nonfiction, including most recently, Building Self-Esteem, How Learning from Shame Helps Us to Grow which is what we'll be discussing in this interview. Here I speak with Dr. Burgo about shame from his unique perspective as a therapist. Now, without further ado, I bring you Dr. Joe Burgo. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Joe Burgo. And uh, first off, uh, you wrote the book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem, which is what we're going to be talking about mostly today. So um, can you kind of give the elevator pitch or like a brief summary of the book and why you decided to write it? Um, starting with the last question, why I decided to write it is because for me personally, in my personal journey, and as well in my practice, shame has become the focus of my work for the past 20 years. Um, I think that shame has kind of gotten a bad name. Um, it's, it's, seems to be viewed as this uniformly toxic kind of experience that is um, imposed on us by other people, you know, by society. That's uh, Brene Brown's perspective. Or by, you know, really toxic parenting, John Bradshaw's uh, take. I think that shame actually is, is a normal everyday experience um, that we need to understand better. That's why I wrote the book, to try and explain what it is, why we feel it, why evolution saw fit to encode it in our genes so that we all have a capacity to feel shame. Um, and then I wanted to show the typical ways that we defend against shame um, by either denying that we feel it, um, by trying to blame other people for it, trying to control the experience ourselves, and I link it up to case studies and um, you know how it comes up in my practice so that other people can see it all around them I hope I mean it's ubiquitous yeah yeah and um, on that note one of the the major themes or I guess kind of a definitional point that you make at the beginning of the book is um, the distinction between what you call shame as a, a family of emotions versus uh, shame in all caps, and uh, maybe you can differentiate between what those two are. Yeah, I mean, I, I put shame in all caps. That's that's kind of the experience that I think um, Brene Brown and John Bradshaw are talking about. It's the big, scary, toxic thing that nobody wants to feel, right? Um, but shame is in fact a much larger experience than, than that. It's a family of emotions that comes from um, Bruchek is a, a, a psychoanalyst, and that's his idea. It comes out of affect theory. And basically, it's, it's, a, it's a set of emotions where the, the common experience is, is kind of a painful awareness of self. 
and that could be something as small as feeling self-conscious. Um, it could be embarrassment, mild. It could be humiliation, mortification. It, um, it can be fleeting. It can be an enduring, it could be big or it could be small, but the, all these emotions share that kind of painful awareness of self. And that, that's kind of in contrast to pride, which is a pleasant awareness of self, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, and so it sounds like, and you, you cite him multiple times in the book, but uh, Michael Lewis, the um, emotions researcher, seems to be uh, influential in your, your way of thinking about the self-conscious emotions. Right. Um, you, you know, it's one of those experiences where you have a clinical understanding of something, you really know how it works, and then you have to go find what everybody else says about it to, to find the science behind it. That was that was actually a pretty enjoyable experience. I had to read a lot of things that I probably wouldn't normally read um, to find out, you know, that there's a whole group of affect theorists who believe that it's you know, it's inbuilt, we all experience it, and you can see it in the first months of life. Mm. Yes, yeah, and that, that definitely, the breadth of uh, both the, the clinical side and the kind of more academic understanding of shame absolutely comes through. Um, so another distinction I thought was interesting, or I guess it was sort of a lack of distinction that you made, was between the difference between guilt and shame, because those are often uh, distinguished, but you sort of uh, blur the boundary between those. Well, it's um, it's the kind of one of those widely accepted definitions that everybody believes without questioning. It, um, it, I think it's Bradshaw who says, guilt is about what you do, shame is about who you are. And, and I would say, yes, that's true, but they're both in that painful awareness of having done something wrong or the painful awareness of who you are as a person, they're both, they're all shame. They're part of the shame family of emotions. So it's a useful distinction, but, you know, I don't find it terribly useful, I guess, to be honest. Gotcha. But yeah. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, and just a couple more uh, sort of definitional points before we jump into a little bit of the, uh, the developmental stuff. Um, so uh, one concept that you outline is core shame. And I wonder if you could just outline what that is. What is core shame? Yeah, it's, it's an experience, an agonizing experience, often unconscious of your development having gone really wrong during childhood, that it departed dramatically from what might have been expected, what your what your genes encode in you as an expectation for what the world, the environment, your family will provide to you when it's just really, really off. Um, you, you grow up with this feeling of defect. Um, and there's science, scientific evidence for what I would call brain damage, that if you don't get what you need in the, those early months and years of development, your brain doesn't develop normally. You can see it in MRI scans. There's differences between the brain scans of healthy children and children who grew up in you know, extremely toxic environments. It's, it's very painful to see uh, and to know that it's kind of, um, it's not that it's irreparable, but it, it's, it's kind of like, I, I, the analogy I use is with rickets, 
like if you don't get the vitamin D you need as a vitamin C, I can't remember, but it's a, it's a certain vitamin that you need for a proper bone development in a critical stage. And if you don't get it, you'll, you'll, you'll never be the same. You'll never be as if you had had that during the critical period. And there's critical periods for emotional, psychological experiences, just like there are for everything else. And if you don't get what you need from your environment, you, you, um, you don't grow up as you might have done in a normal environment. So that's core shame, a sense of inner defect, um, damage, um, this knowledge that you're, you're quote, different, you're not normal. Mm. Yeah, and uh, what sorts of things, uh, like, is it, is it simply positive experiences with, between the, the parent and child uh, at that critical period or during that critical period that um, maybe uh, tips the balance one way or the other? Uh, is there, are there other kinds of experience? I, I guess what I'm asking is what sorts of experiences are needed for that kind of core shame to develop? Right. Well, obviously, if there are things like, you know, violent discord in the household, um, physical and sexual abuse, I mean, those are obviously going to damage you. But I spend a lot of time in the book detailing how in the, in the first year of life, there needs to be a lot of kind of positive mirroring back, you know, the way parents are infatuated with their children and they, you know, kind of everything they do is wonderful, um, joyful experiences, shared joy experiences. Those are necessary for the brain to develop. And then in the second year of life, there's a different kind of experience in which parents start to say things like no, um, and where they, they introduce what child development experts would call shame. It's where not every, you know, the, the kid does something that used to get like praise or admiration, and then it gets a no, or it gets a correction because the parents are teaching them, you know, how to fit into society, what the world expects of them. And you need both of those. You need the joyful experience of connection and mirroring, and then you need the, the appropriate non-harsh non shaming experiences in which they learned to curtail their grandiosity, I'd say, learn how they fit into the world, learn to have a concept that other people also exist and you have to take them into account. Um, that's, that's it, you know, in a, in a simplified version. And if there's a lack of empathy in the household, you know, if the parents are incapable, if they're drug addicts, if there's violent divorce, I mean, all of those things will interfere with the proper unfolding of development. Right, right. And um, I want to return to the, uh, the using shame to socialize children in, in just a moment. But um, uh, on this point of development, one thing that you describe and um, relate to a number of times is the, the still face experiment. And um, I'm wondering, how does that relate to these idea of, of shame experiences in early childhood? Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll let you take that, however. Sure. Um, well, one of the one of the points I make is that shared in that first year of life, shared joy is really, it's it. You know, it's the 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 baby seeing in the parent's face that he or she brings joy to their parents, that it's reflected back to them. And there's all sorts of stuff about the chemistry, the neurotransmitters that that um, are released during this experience. Um, that's 
that's key. And it's a lot about face, right? Shame is a lot about face. S saving face is the way we talk about shame. So when the, when the parent, in the still face, it's a mother. When the mother's face goes blank, when the child was expecting joyful mirroring, and engagement, um, it's traumatizing. And, and if if your listeners haven't seen this, they should go to YouTube and and search the still face experiment. There's a number of videos, but um, they're incredibly painful to watch as you see this baby become more and more distressed um, at the mother's lack of engagement. Um, I think that that is a shaming experience when you're, you, you want to engage and you want to share joy and instead you're met with indifference or worse. That's a shaming experience. Imagine that repeated over and over and over again um, in, a, in a traumatic environment, in a, you know, a mother who has postpartum depression mm -hmm. or there's violent discord. Then it builds up into this I think it becomes an unbearably shaming experience and then you have to develop all sorts of defenses against it to ward it off. But um, yeah, that's why the still face experiment is in the book because it's all about the face. Yeah, yeah, it seems to provide this kind of foundation for um, for how we experience shame later on. Um, so maybe we can go into a little more detail on the, the healthy and the unhealthy ways of using shame to socialize children. You mentioned that a little while ago, but maybe you can give some examples or uh, just go into a little more depth. Yeah, I mean, I think that that distinction we were, we were talking about earlier about shame being about who you are. Um, that's the bad kind of shame. And it's where the message to the child is, is kind of global, like, it's not you, know, you did something wrong. It's that you're you're a bad child because you did something wrong, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's it's too big. It's infused with parental anger, and it happens too often. Um, you know, the the kind of shame that's useful in parenting is really very subtle. And one of the things that researchers talk about is that often. Um, breaking eye contact or looking away can communicate a disapproval. That's a, a very minor kind of shame. Um, so the, the child does something that she's really proud of, but it isn't really acceptable to the parent. And the parent kind of just, you know, doesn't praise her, doesn't mm -hmm. smile, but kind of looks away. That, that could be shaming. And it's, it's a minor correction. So the child gets the message, oh, that, that isn't acceptable behavior. Mm. And because, because shame is so painful, even those, in those little doses, we all want to avoid it, right? And so by having that experience and having that slightly painful experience of shame, then the child won't do it the next time. I mean, that's the idea is that they learn, the shame teaches them something about what's acceptable behavior, but in a, in a very micro way, not in a global way. Right. Okay. Yeah. And a manageable dose and uh, not global, as you say. Um, so now moving into more, I guess, into adulthood or just regular life uh, outside of uh, childhood development. Um, what are some of the most common general causes of shame in our daily lives? Um, I'm thinking of unrequited love and 
unwanted exposure, some of these uh, themes that you touch on in the book? You know, these days, I think, I think the, um, the biggest one that everybody will relate to is, is being, you know, exposed in some way to censure that's really painful. I mean, the social media shaming is the big thing that everybody's frightened of. You know, everybody's afraid of having a wrong opinion and there being a pile on and being cast out. I mean, being outside, outside of the group, being unaccepted is, is huge. Everybody's afraid of that. I mean, and with good reason. I mean, survival depends upon being accepted into the tribe and belonging, right? So if you're if you're outcast, then it's it's a life or death issue. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that does seem to uh, to accord with the sort of cancel culture and then that kind of whole world of things, um, which I actually want to touch on in a little while. But um, as far as uh, another part of your book, as you mentioned earlier, has to do with kind of the ways that people hide deny or control their shame. Um, so I just want to ask you about a few of those. Um, so first off, I found it interesting um, when you were mentioning anxiety and specifically social anxiety um, and how shame is often related to that. Can you talk a little about that? I mean, I, I think it, 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 you don't have to be a psychologist to uh, you know, understand that people don't like to be um, exposed in unflattering ways and are really frightened of being judged or found inferior or unattractive or unlikable. Um, those are all shaming experiences and you, you will fe feel anxious at the prospect of encountering that experience. So hence social anxiety, right? I think that's pretty much what it's all about. It's all about feel, you know, it's anxiety about feeling shame, the kind of shame that would come from being exposed in an unpleasant way. Mm. Yeah, very clear. Um, another one you mentioned was uh, procrastination. How is uh, that? Those seem like somewhat uh, disparate concepts, shame and procrastination. Can you tie those two together? Yeah, um, I be I've belonged to a writer's group for the last 25 years, and we, we talk about this, you know, if you never finish something, you never have to encounter judgment, right? Um, I have a friend who's been working on the same novel for 25 years, hmm. and it's, it's brilliant, but it's probably not perfect. Um, it, and, and I think the perfectionism of wanting to present something to the world that is immune to criticism, I mean, it's, it's immune to any kind of shame, I think that often leads people to, to just never finish, right? You just never cross the finish line because you can't bear the prospect of criticism. Right, right. Um, all right, now a couple others here, just kind of touching on a lot of the themes that you cover. Um, such as uh, addiction and promiscuity. That was a really interesting chapter. So can shame or does it often encourage addiction and promiscuity? Is it just one of the many causes of these things? Is it always there? Uh, how do you view that connection? I, 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 I can't generalize to say that it's always there, but it's, it's a big part of it. It's, you know, it's uh, Drugs and alcohol make shame go away, right? It's, it's they dissolve into alcohol. Right. And, you know, it's, it becomes a kind of 
vicious circle where you you use drugs to escape from shame and you feel better but then when you recover from the drug you feel shame for having used the drug and then you return to the drug to get away from the shame and it's just a self-reinforcing um self-reinforcing thing i think the same thing is is sex is like a drug right it's it's it, it, when it's promiscuous sex right it's because you're it's not about relationship it's not about intimacy it's about you know the, the feeling of sexual excitement and pleasure that um you go back to as if it were a drug to escape from from shame but then the same cycle you feel ashamed afterwards and so you then revert to the the same drug mm, yeah it's definitely understandable um and then uh, uh, finally, on these these shame experiences, um, and this one seems pr pretty obvious, but the way that you explained it uh, was illuminating. So self hatred and self mockery, um, those are interesting. And and you often bring up the context of like uh, stand up comedians who uh, may make fun of themselves. Um, I was wondering if you can kind of talk about that in the context of shame. Right. So you had mentioned earlier that that I, that I talk about the th there's three strategies. You know, one is avoiding shame. That's social anxiety. One is denying shame, which is narcissism, which I hope we'll talk a little bit about. And then denying shame. I mean, then controlling shame. That's. I'm going to say it before you can say it. You can't shame me because I'm going to shame myself first. I think the the worst experience is is the unexpected shaming experience. You know, when you aren't you aren't prepared for it, you're just out there enjoying yourself, you're relaxed, and then you do something foolish or something happens that exposes you to public ridicule. It's 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 worse when you don't see it coming. So by controlling it by getting there before anybody else can say it by making the joke at my own expense then at least i know it's happening right and and i have control over when it happens you know how intense it is how strong it is what's pointed out um that it, i think that the the step the the sections on self-hatred might be counterintuitive and harder for people to understand but it's you know it's it's really true that the the uncontrolled experience that someone can inflict upon you without you seeing com coming is way worse than hating yourself. It's, it's it sounds weird, but it but it is. Wow, wow, yeah. So it, a way of of uh, planning the shame in some way to to know when it'll occur and how intense it'll be, so it's not the surprising uh, brace of experience. Right, and I, I one of the one of the cases I talk about in the book is um, a guy I worked with who who hated himself as a way of stopping himself from ever becoming vulnerable. Like whenever there was a prospect of relationship um, with a woman, he would just go into a bout of self hatred that would actually put him in bed. He was so it was so horrible, but he would never risk actual shame, you know, at the hands of someone else in relationship by being vulnerable. Mm, yes, I do. I remember that case. Um, well, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, narcissism. And I think that that has to do with this idea of the ideal, idealized false self. Is that correct? And if so, can you yeah. uh, talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are all sorts of ways of coping with shame that that we all 
employ um, that aren't pathological, that are that are normal. And I, I really do try and talk about the everyday ways of coping with shame. The pathological ones, I mean, narcissism is is the big one, and it, it's where the this sense of core shame is is so unbearable and repressed, and and, and an, an entirely false self is constructed to cover over the shame and to present to the world as, you know, here's this perfect person and don't you admire me? And I am none of those things that I feel underneath. Um, so that's that's the core defense in narcissism. It, it goes along with a, a, a set of other defenses that we all use all the time that are normal, but in a narcissist, they're, they're characterological and you know, persistent. So that's, you know, blaming other people for our own shortcomings. We all do that from time to time. Um, contempt, arrogance. Um, you know, I think we, your listeners will probably recognize people when they hear this descriptions um, because the, what the, the narcissist usually does is it, he, he or she displaces this shame-ridden self that's denied, projects it onto other people and then <clears throat> scorns, contemns, shames them to get rid of his or her own feelings. Um, pretty, pretty common de defense mechanism in narcissists. I mean, I think right. we've all, everybody's known people like that, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and you, you just mentioned that it's that trying to deny, um, avoid, control <laughs> shame isn't always unhealthy. Um, but if we use any of those tactics, like pathologically, or, or it becomes like a crutch, uh, then it can become unhealthy. Um, if I'm saying that correctly, but um, I want to kind of turn to how shame, how dealing with shame, how uh, facing it can actually help us grow both personally and um, as a society. Uh, so, so why is shame useful as an emotion? Like, let's just kind of get down to what's the utility of shame? Well, you know, first of all, in the global way, shame is useful for the human species in, in promoting um, tribal norms so that shame, we developed the capacity to experience shame because fear of shame causes us to um, subscribe to tribal values, increases our survival value, increases the survival value of the tribe. On a personal level, <clears throat> I think that shame um, often has something to teach us. Like there's a reason why we feel shame sometimes. And if we just defend against it, uh, then we don't, um, we don't learn anything. We just persist, you know, we just keep on denying that we have anything to feel um, ashamed about. So I, you know, there's examples throughout the book that often my personal examples of things that, you know, that I felt ashamed about ways I'd behaved and that it was only when I could, you know, accept that there was actually a good reason to feel ashamed, that shame was in fact the appropriate feeling, um, not the global, I'm a totally bad person kind of shame, but, you know, the more, more discreet, yeah, I, I really misbehaved there. I owe someone an apology. Um, 
you know, there, there's many occasions, and I think, I think this is surprisingly rare. Um, I think about uh, the very heartfelt apologies I've made in my life that involved a lot of soul searching and coming, coming to grips with my own mistakes and character flaws so that I could grow enough you know, to to grapple with them. And then I think about all the apologies that I'm really due and will never get. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people, I think it's pe very hard for people to admit they, they, they made a mistake so that they can learn from a feeling of shame. It's, yeah. I think it's rare. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I love the example you give of, uh, of your own personal experience of when you're talking to a friend at dinner and kind of got into a debate about politics and uh, one thing led to another and you you ended up apologizing. I thought it was a very interesting way that you described it. Uh, maybe you can outline that story for people. Yeah, it, these are close close friends of, of ours um, and we're still good friends. But um, the husband in this couple and I like to talk politics and we get we can get heated about it. Um, we mostly agree on things, so it's very good natured and we don't mind a lively debate. His wife gets very agitated and I knew this um, and I, I was insensitive and I, I really drove her away from the table. Um, if she was so upset by just being in the presence of this kind of um, conversation, which we, you know, the husband and I easily could have done on our own some other time. So it's it's a minor example, but it was insensitive, and I apologized to her, and it was apology was accepted. You know, I I misbehaved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was despite your your male friend saying uh, that that he hadn't been offended by anything, but you felt that you had uh, cr crossed your own lines. You don't not lived up to your own values. Right, right. and and you know and. And as I said, driven his wife away from the table. That's not very good host-like behavior. Yes, yeah. I, uh, I think we can all relate to an experience like that for sure. Um, so you mentioned how shame is useful in a social context. Um, and early on in the book, you mentioned um, uh, John Ronson's book, the, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And that is kind of the, the precursor or, or sort of a prologue to the current times where we're some people call it cancel culture some people just call it accountability but um what do you think of the that current um current kind of movement that that's and maybe maybe it's just on twitter but it seems to be on social media where it seems to me that there, there may be times when public shaming kind of spirals out of control would you agree with that and what, what's your view of that you know, the, the whole thing about the history of shame and how societies have used it is, um, you know, shame expulsion from the social order was usually a temporary thing and you were allowed to make amends and then you were, once you had learned your lesson, you were welcomed back into the tribe. You know, sh shaming as a, you know, as, a as an attempt to reform behavior and it included forgiveness. The way shame works now is there you are out and there's no chance of rehabilitation. You know, it's it's that's what canceling is, is it's it's like if you made a mistake, you're done and you can never reform 
and your life is over. I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, and in some cases, that seems that does seem appropriate. Like you know, with you know, sexual predators like Harvey Weinstein. You know, yeah, that pretty much is unforgivable. But there's a lot of other things that you know youthful indiscretions, the wrong words spoken at the wrong time, having an opinion when you were in your 20s that you changed later. I mean, are you really forever banished from the tribe for having made a mistake? I don't, that, that seems wrong to me. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're just talking about how it, it was once a way of temporarily pushing people out of society to sort of teach them a lesson and then they would come back in. Um, but you know, and, and you're just saying that there's different bars for this, but if you had to come up with something, what would be the, what should be the mechanism for allowing people back into society? Um, is it after they've apologized, like provided that their offense wasn't so extreme that we, you know, consider it unforgivable? Is that, is that enough or is this just too broad of a question? <laughs> No, it's, I don't think it's too broad of a question. Well, first of all, apologies is never enough in cancel culture, you know, and a lot of people g give the advice when you're canceled is don't ever apologize because it just makes them pile on even more. Um, but I, th I think that there does need to be an apology of some kind. It needs to be sincere, which is hard to gauge. So it can't be just an apology. I think over time, you have to see some evidence of true contrition and that um, people really have reformed. You know, it's kind of a ritual in Hollywood that, you know, you, you apologize, you go into detox <clears throat> for, you know, for some kind of addiction, and then you come out and you do public service. That's the right model, but that too can be faked. So, so I don't know. It just seems to me that there has to be, the door has to be open, right? You have to allow people to, to prove that they are worthy of acceptance back into society. You can't forever banish them, um, except in, you know, you know, the most heinous cases. Right, right. Well, um, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I wonder uh, if you're all right with it, I, I would kind of like to zoom out to some bigger questions that, or broader questions, I, I guess, um, uh, outside of, of shame and, and more, um, some of these are a little bit philosophical. Some have to do with current events. And if, if you're all right with that, I'd like to jump sure. into that. Yeah. Um, so actually, I came across a, a really interesting article that you wrote um, in April 2020 about, it was titled, Why Liberals Should Oppose the Lockdown. And you were arguing that uh, even if you agree with authoritarian actions by governments, you should oppose them. And uh, I, I particularly loved your quote there. I, I just wanted to read this, that um, you said, we must cling to our defense of civil liberties and not, def not defer to a vast expansion of government authority in the name of saving lives. Um, so I know this is totally kind of off the topic of shame and everything, but uh, I think it's still relevant now. And I'm wondering if you can explain your rationale in that article and uh, maybe what your knowledge of, of human psychology, how that maybe played into this or how you think about those things. Uh, well, you know, you, you may think you've gone, you've departed from shame, but you haven't really. It's, it's right on topic. Um, you know, I always say I'm, a, I'm, I'm of a libertarian bent and I always say to my friends of either party, I said, you should believe in limited government because your party is not always going to be in. 
and then you have to accept that the power you've accorded government when your team was in can now be used by you know, the other team. Um, that's, to me, the biggest argument for being a libertarian. And um, this big expansion of government power now that has really been supported by the left um, is scary. And, and I don't think that I don't think that people on the left have properly appreciated that those powers that are now accorded to the government can be used by the other side, right? So if, if like one of the arguments I make is like, well, you know, if, if I decide that, if the government decides that you have to, to stay at home and, and you have to be vaccinated and wear a mask because it's endangering the life of somebody else, I mean, why can't, why can't the Supreme Court come in and say, you know, you, you, can't, you can't have a right to choose because you're endangering the life of an unborn fetus. I mean, and we're about to see that happen, right? So um, I, I just think that the, the vast expansion of power and the willingness of people to be told what to do by their government and suspend critical thought was, was really upsetting to me over the last couple of years. And the way it was done was with shame. It was done mm -hmm. with shame and fear. So there was a big propaganda machine going on, you know, constantly trumpeting the dangers and the figures and the expansions and the deaths and making everyone terrified. Um, Laura Dodsworth wrote a really good book um, called The State of Fear about how that happened, mm. how governments used fear to enforce conformity and to get people to do what they were told. Mm. Um, and then I, I think the other thing is like shame. I mean, shaming people who were um, skeptical, shaming people who thought, well, do masks really work? Shaming people who, who were skeptical about the value of, of vaccines were they really were they really safe were they tested thoroughly um i mean i spent two years really keeping my mouth shut because virtually everybody i know had a different opinion from mine and i listened to them express contempt for people who thought the way i did um and they're, you know, kind of like those people are, you know, they're the uh, the great unwashed. They're stupid Trump supporters. You know, they, you know, it was it was horrible. You know, there was no room for any kind of dissent. And I'm really worried about this now. I'm worried about the the creation of this new you know, disinformation bureau within the Department of Defense. Yeah. Terrifying idea to me. Mm -hmm. That you know that that some government agency is going to decide what's disinformation. Well, you know, you look at Joe Rogan. Yeah. And one of his th one of the things he said was, all of these things that are now turning out to be true, like the Wuhan lab theory, um, the efficacy of vaccines, whether or not they really stopped transmission, and on and on. He said those were cancelable offenses a year ago. You know, you could get dropped from Twitter. You could be banned from YouTube. Um, I don't know. It's like, but but it was this enforced consensus. Like this is what the science had decided, and anybody who didn't agree was, you know, a troglodyte and had to be banished. 
I mean, that, that's shame, and it's, it's a pretty insidious kind of shame. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Actually, I also have kind of a libertarian bent. Um, but yeah, that's all, I think, completely true. And uh, I was just listening to an interview with uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but about he was one of the authors of the, the Great Barrington Declaration, which was about um, essentially uh, questioning a lot of, of the things that had been uh, established as as the science by people like Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. And um, the reason I'm mentioning it is because I think your point about shame is, is on point. And even at the highest levels, uh, there was a sort of smear campaign against people like Bhattacharya and the other authors of that, that article uh, to sort of shame them into submission or, or at least create the, the illusion that they, they should be shamed for uh, pushing you know, what was considered by the sort of establishment as junk science, but is now being seen as uh, credible and, and good science. Totally. Um, Jay Bhattacharya is a hero of mine. And in, and the other two authors, uh, Martin Koldorf and Sunedra Gupta, I signed on to that declaration when mm. it came out. And I followed them from the very beginning, including and other epidemiologists and virologists who had a dissenting point of view, but had been kind of locked out, you know, because they dissented. Um, it was horrible. It was a horrible thing, especially since, as you know, what the Great Barrington Declaration was advocating for had been accepted pandemic apology up through 2019. It was accepted science that that was the way they were going to deal with it. And then everything changed and they were just trying to uphold what we all knew was true pre-COVID. And yet they were shamed and banished from, from the scientific community. I mean, it was, it was awful. Yeah, it, absolutely. Well, um, I, I'd love to, to keep talking about this, but um, I do have some other uh, very different questions uh, that we, will, we can go into, if that's all right. Um, so I, th this, um, well, actually, first, I kind of, I want to back up and, and ask you a little bit of <clears throat> biographical information, um, because you were talking about how this book is, is kind of a personal project for you and how there's, there's a lot of your own um, personal experiences in this. And I wonder if you could um, kind of just talk about where you, you maybe where you grew up or, or what your academic background is and how you came to be a therapist, how you came to study shame and, um, and just how all that fits into this book and, and your thinking in general. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an easy question. <laughs> yeah, you want my life story. Exactly. Um, I'll, I'll make it as short and succinct as I can. So I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and I was, by the time I reached my teen years, I was pretty severely depressed, mildly suicidal, um, struggling with my sexuality. And I went into therapy at that time and stayed in therapy with the same therapist for 13 years. And he saved my life. Um, and also, I think, which is a frequent route to becoming a therapist is that midway through, I realized that um, I wanted to become a therapist and re recoup some of this money I had spent on, <laughs> on therapy over the years. Um, it, it's a surprisingly common story is about how many people come to therapy that way. So I, I was trained as a psychoanalyst 
I mean, I, I had a, a counseling license. I have a clinical psychology license, but I'm also a graduate psychoanalyst, which means that I went through, apart from the, the seminars, I went through a personal analysis four times a week for years. And that's where you learn how to practice therapy. So I consider my, my personal therapy to have been really successful. It's where I learned how to be a therapist. My therapist was a really good therapist except for having some kind of um, doctrinaire ideas about homosexuality. Mm. So he sort of supported my wish to not be a gay man. So I married and I had a ostensibly heterosexual life and I have three children and I don't regret any of it, but it was part of my idealized false self. You know, I was, I was normal, right? And, you know, not only was I normal, I kind of had this enviable life, you know, two, two professionals, you know, yuppie couple on the west side of Los Angeles. We were doing well. We had a nice house. We had beautiful children. And then my marriage fell apart and I came out and um, I was just sort of overcome with shame. Um, and I had to kind of dig my way out of it. And a, a good friend of mine, who um, was also an analyst, began talking to me about shame and um, her understanding of it, and it just really hit home. So out of my personal growth, I then started applying all of those ideas to my clients, some of whom had been with me for a long time and we were kind of stuck, like we weren't making progress and it was because I didn't understand shame. Hmm. Um, and I'm always grateful to those patients who stayed with me long enough for me to learn what I needed to learn to help them. Um, so then I started putting it to work in my practice. Um, and then I started writing about it and researching it. Um, and since it's the clinically and personally, the most important issue for me that, you know, I've kind of spent the last 20 years, you know, thinking, writing about it. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's a fascinating story. I, and, and I, I must say the book is, is wonderfully written. It's, it's very uh, vivid and, and just very good writing. And I know that you're also a, a fiction writer too. And i um, wondering if you can talk, if, does that inform or, or supplement your, your work as a therapist at all? For sure. Um, I mean, all of my therapeutic ideas, all my ideas about psychology, of course, inform, inform my characters. So I wrote a collection of three fairy tales, fairy tale retellings. It's uh, Cinderella, Snow White, and um, Rapunzel. And they're each like novella length. And they're, they're all about shame, right? They're all about shame and defenses against shame. Um, so like Cinderella starts with her, the, the, the sense something to the effect that she had always felt like she belonged in the ashes, um, that she was just incredibly shame ridden. And then it goes from there. Um, the one of the, the, the huntsmen in the, in the Snow White story is a closeted gay man riddled with shame. And the, the, the wicked stepmother is, uh, a total narcissist defending mm -hmm. against shame, kind of more of a personnel, like a more of like a 
antisocial personality disorder type. And then the, the third fairy tale was about borderline. So it's really all about how shame informs certain kind of mental illness, borderline person. I think shame is really impl implicated in all of the personality disorders. Um, hmm. and, and, you know, kind of, I don't know, I think it's all about shame, right? It all comes down to shame ultimately for me. Ah, I get you. Yeah, wow. Well, um, now, uh, the, the last few questions I have are really broad, but um, so I kind of subject all my guests to answering this very simple, easy question of um, how the brain works if they're a neuroscientist. But um, I'm, I'm interested in asking you, what's your view of how the mind works or, or how does it develop um, if, that's, if that's something you think about? I, I do think about it. I'm I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't really speak at that level of, of um, understanding. But I, I do think that I reference those MRI studies that talk about brain development. I do think that um, you know the the brain develops in accordance with environmental stimuli, and that it can be deformed, deficient, defective, based on really bad environments. And I think that. I'm, I'm, you know, I know neuroplasticity is the big thing. I, I know that's true to some extent, but I think it has limits. And I, I don't think that neuroplasticity means that you can take someone who had a brutal, toxic childhood and make them as if they were like someone who came from a happy family. I don't think that. I think there are limits. I, I do believe in, in, in damage that is you, you can't, you know, recover from. I think it, but I don't, that sounds more pessimistic than I feel. To me, it's more like, yeah, I have these limitations and I just have to take them into account, you know, when I'm planning what I can't, I can't expect myself to be un, unaffected by my past. I have to take it into account. It's affected the way my brain works. And there's this so, only so much I can do about that. Mm -hmm. Right. More about improvement rather than some kind of perfection that, that can't be attained. Right, exactly. Right. Um, I, one, one other thing I would say yeah. is that I, I talk a lot about, you know, neural pathways being etched. Uh, I, I think about that a lot in terms of habits and, and it's like fall, <clears throat> falling into the rut and that will always be the default position unless you exert energy to get out of the rut, out of the neural pathway and to then etch and form and etch new pathways. I think that way a lot about forming positive, about ha positive habit formation and why it's so hard to change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the sort of the work of, of therapy and of just changing ourselves in general is that that's what, that's what the hard part is, is changing those, those pathways in our brains. Right. And I always say that, you know, insight, the aha moments, that's the easy part. Mm, mm -hmm. And then you have to put it to work, which requires a lot of effort going against the grain, going against all your inclinations. It's not easy to change. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, if you had to recommend somebody read just one book about whether it's um, a broad topic like psychology or, or, some, or perhaps it's um, on therapy, but if there was just one book that somebody had to read in kind of that realm, what would you recommend? And you can recommend your own book if you'd like. 
No, I'm not. I'm not that much of a narcissist. <laughs> um, I will. I will. I will recommend the book that most that has affected me most that I've read in the past ten years, and that's *Sapiens* mm. by Yuval Harari. The mm -hmm. most disturbing look at human nature. That, um, but it it it's a, it's kind of a brutally honest about what human beings are really like. The, a lot of this stuff in in e evolutionary biology is, I think, profound and and people need to understand that they need to read it yeah um, why do you think that's relevant um evolutionary biology for kind of our current times because i think people like to pretend that well it's the whole blank slate hypothesis of human nature which i do not subscribe to the unconstrained vision and you know thomas yes. thomas soul talks about i think there's this wish to believe that we can just invent human nature as we would like it to be and it's all it's all malleable it's all depends on social influence and i think an understanding about how evolution shaped us and what the you know what what's in our genes that we really can't avoid you know how hormones work for exa mm -hmm. example i mean i just think you know stop pretending that you know human human nature is better than it is or different from what it is right right all right well that's uh, interesting you just recommend or you just mentioned two of my strongest recommendations which are the blank slate by stephen pinker and uh, a conflict of visions by thomas Sowell. Um, there you go. Nice. <laughs> uh, right here in front of me. And oh, excellent. Bo oh. Both right here. Oh, Here's that's... another one. I don't know if you know this book. Do you know this book? Oh, okay. it's kind of blending in de uh, demonic males. Demonic like males. I haven't. Who's that by? It, it's by uh, Richard Wrangham. He's, oh. um, I think he's at Harvard. And it's just it's he's an evolutionary biologist and it's just about what 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 men are like all over the world and what's in there and why it's there it's it's troubling yeah well that, that sounds fascinating i'll put that on my list for sure um it's looked probably you have a, a great stack of books over there it seems like well these happen to be the three that i was i was reading recently because i've been i've just finished teaching a course um with a friend of mine and the the blank slate was was one of the things I was talking about, and and the Thomas Sowell book about the constrained versus the unconstrained visions. Yeah, those those are just fascinating books, and if anybody hasn't come across them yet, I mean, those are two of my favorite writers out there too. So uh, definitely check those out, and I will uh, get that demonic males on my list, um, and uh, the one that you recommended at first that I'm now blanking on which is sapiens, sapiens sapiens i've read that as well <laughs> yes but yeah. but that is a good one um so uh as i mentioned that the writing in the book is just superb and i'm wondering if you have any kind of general lessons for you know a science communicator like me uh, about communicating psychology and these kind of uh complex topics to a general audience you know i think that if you're communicating psychology properly to people, it should be intuitively, obviously true to them. Because I think all we're doing is talking about common sense things, right? Things that people will say, oh yeah, of course, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but yeah. Um, I think it should be easily accessible. It shouldn't require a lot of specialized vocabulary or knowledge. It's just human nature, what we all know. 
Well, that definitely comes through in shame. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today, Joe. It's been really fascinating. And I, I just, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thank, thanks a lot for inviting me. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for listening or watching this episode of the Sense of Mind podcast. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel as well as the podcast. And also consider giving this show a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you use. As always, this channel is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation. This episode was written and produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Thank you so much for watching. I'll catch you next time.